Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I, no longer, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. I never thought that I'd be a pastor. Uh, I grew up in a family business, and from the time, I remember Dad giving us some, you had bought briefcases from Mexico that you had gotten a bunch of cheap briefcases, and I thought of how I could uh, sell them at a price, and I kept my little briefcase like Dad did with papers, and I went to the University of Texas and joined the business school to prepare to go into the business world, and then uh, God saved me. And I was listening to a cassette sermon in my dorm one night, and the pastor said that God did not make us to serve ourselves, but to serve Him. 
And so I got down on my knees and I gave my life to Christ and um, I began wanting to serve the Lord with my life. And I felt the call to ministry. And when I first went to Dallas Seminary, I thought that I would be a missionary. And I thought I would go down to South America and share the gospel with those who hadn't heard it. And then there was an opportunity to do some teaching. And I had always had a bent towards learning and felt like God had given me some teaching gifts. And I thought, well, I'll be a university professor. And I'll just go on campuses and represent Christ by teaching history or some field. And then in my second year of seminary, God gave me an epiphany. Uh, I was studying the book of Ephesians. I was reading a gentleman named Augustine. And it struck me, I have no ecclesiology. I had never understood the church. That when I became a Christian, I attended church because I knew you were supposed to. And I often benefited from it and enjoyed it. But in reading the words of Paul and one of the great theologians of the church, I realized I had gotten it all wrong. Church isn't somewhere that we come and attend. Church is who we are. Church is the family of God that I've been adopted into. The church is the body of Christ that I'm a member of. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when God saved me, he took another brick and then he began to polish it off and place me in my spot to be a part of the temple of God that represents him on earth. And I had an epiphany, I had a revelation, and I fell in love with the local church and wanted to give my life to serving Christ in the service of his church. And of course, once you really begin to get inside the sausage factory that is church, you realize all the faults and all the flaws and all the sins and all the struggles. But at the end of the day, there is no plan B for the church. It is God's presence on earth and the organism that Christ has created to fulfill his commission until he comes back. And all the people in the church are all the people in heaven because they're one and the same. And I felt the desire to give my life to serving Christ in the service of the church. And I suspect that my journey into a deeper view and appreciation of the church is shared by many, or y'all may just not even realize there's a journey to embark on. Because most of us as Americans understand that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That if we confess that we are sinners and ask Jesus to save us, then we can become a son or daughter of God and we begin growing and maturing in our faith with Christ. But what not all of us realize is that everyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ has a corporate relationship with the body of Christ, the church. It's not something that we choose. It's not an elective. It's not an advanced uh, opportunity. Everyone who is in Christ is in the body of Christ. And what we've been doing this summer is trying to appreciate what is the church. And so I don't know, if, do we have the slides up? I'm seeing signal, no. Okay, I'm seeing slides here, but you're not seeing them back there. We started talking about the church in Acts that gave us the model or the paradigm of what a healthy church looks like. That is, these people embraced Christ, they came together into a fellowship, and there they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to prayer, and to fellowship. And that as they did so, many were brought into that fellowship because that healthy, thriving paradigm of a church is the way that we fulfill the commission of making disciples of all the nations. That the reason the church exists is to create followers of Jesus Christ, to invite people to follow him as their Lord and to follow his teaching, his commands, his example, and then to enter into that mission ourselves. That the mark of a disciple is love for other disciples. That Jesus gave a new commandment that said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's not how we vote, it's not the bumper stickers on our car, it's not the radio stations that we listen to, 
It's our love for other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that demonstrates to the world that's a true disciple. That validates our claim. That gives credibility to our identity as Christians. But they have an enemy opposed to us in trying to follow God and fulfilling His commission. So Fred talked to us about putting on the full armor of God and how every day we have to gird our loins with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and take on the helm of salvation and take up the shield of faith and wear the, the feet of the gospel of good news and to go forth. But every day that journey, that pilgrimage, that following after Christ is opposed by someone who is utterly committed to our destruction and who never sleeps and who never rests and can never be appeased, John Owen says that every lustful look would be adultery if it could, that every angry thought would be murder if it could, because we always have an enemy that's seeking our destruction, and so we have to put on the armor of God to survive that and move forward, and that's every single one of us, because God's plan for the church is for every believer to use the spiritual gift that he gives him or her to serve where God has placed them. There is no professional clergy with a bunch of congregants who watch and listen and tithe. Every believer has a spiritual gift because every believer has a role that God wants them to play. And the fruitful and the fulfilling and the satisfying life that you want is found in fulfilling God's purpose for you, using your gift to serve the church. And then we talked about the whole body of Christ, that all of us are unique but interdependent, just like our bodies, that we're not all the ears or the eyes or the mouth or the tongue, but all of us have a different part because all of us have a different function, and we need each other. None of us is more important than another. None of us is independent of another. None of us can look down on another. We depend on each other. And then we talked about the church's leaders, how God has established elders to shepherd the flock of God. And in order that they might be able to devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer, he also appoints deacons who are servants and deaconesses to serve the ladies. And now we have officers of the church. And then we talked about the church, what's going on inside and out, that inside the church we are becoming like the people that Christ described in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that we are those who are poor in spirit because we know that we're not righteous. We're, we're sinners who are saved by grace. But we mourn over that. And we are meek and gentle. We're not out there to grab and acquire and to fight off. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we're merciful because we've received mercy. And we're pure in heart because we want to see God. And we are peacemakers because that makes us sons and daughters of God. And even though the world persecutes us, we're going to not just hide away in our shelters and our communities, but we're going to go forth like salt to stay the decay of the world, like light to illumine people to how God wants to live the life and to beckon them to come to the living God. And we are to let our light shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Because if there's any good that we do, it's only in Him and only through Him. And then last week we looked at the gathered church and the way we assemble and the way that we gather, and the gift that it is to be a family that can come together on Sundays, and that everything we do is to glorify and please God, and to love and to serve our brothers and sisters, and to welcome and invite the world in, and that's who we are as a church. And today we conclude our summer series on the church by looking at Christ's prayer for the church, because in the last prayer that he recorded before he went to go be betrayed and die for us on the cross, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed five things specifically that we want to conclude our series on the church with. 
So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn them to John chapter 17, where we are going to see Jesus pray for his disciples' fidelity, for their protection, for their holiness, for their unity, and for their presence with him someday. Now, Ian read for us John 17 that's remarkable in so many ways. It is the longest recorded prayer of Christ. More words than any other prayer in scriptures that we have of our Lord. It's important because of its occasion. This is the last recorded words of Christ, the last thing he did before he crossed the Kidron Valley and entered into the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed. This is on the tail end of four chapters that he has spent with his disciples, preparing them for his departure and having taught them to love one another and serve one another and tell them that he's going to give the Holy Spirit to enable them to walk with them and that they should abide in him, that they could bear fruit that remains. He prays for them. He lifts them up before the Father. And then the content of this prayer that we're about to unfold. So the first thing Jesus prays in verses 11 to 13 is he prays for our fidelity to the truth. Jesus says this in verse 11. I have manifested or made your name known to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. Now, the name in the Bible refers to God's character. It's who God is. And God sent his son to reveal himself to human beings And now that display of God's glory, of who he really is and all that he's done for us, he entrusted to the disciples. And the first prayer that he prays for his disciples and for us as the church is to stay in that truth, to remain faithful to that word, to not wander and to be oppressed and to accommodate and to compromise and to update and to make more palliable to ourselves and to the world around us. My daughter was dropped off at college and was buying textbooks for her classes. And one of the mandatory classes at her school is titled Christian Scriptures. And it's a Christian school, and every student that goes to the school has to take a a class called Christian Scriptures. But when I saw the textbooks for this class, I recognized the author as someone who is famous for denying the Scriptures. That the whole purpose of the textbook is to undermine people's confidence in the Word of God because this person fell away from believing that the Bible is the Word of God and inspired and he's written many books trying to undermine other people's belief in the inspired Word of God and this is happening in a Christian school and I remember feeling at first puzzled and then disappointed (laughs) and then indignant and then I felt concerned not so much for my daughter but for the other students who maybe didn't have the same upbringing in good doctrine that she did And then I felt concerned for these teachers because Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would have been better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the ocean. And there are people out there who have dedicated themselves to causing people to stumble and to lose their faith in the word of God. And it's tempting to do because the world hated Christ. The world therefore hates Christians. And it is always trying to get the church to change its teachings to accommodate what's popular at the time. And that changes from age to age. But the temptation is, we'll approve of you if you just say what we want you to say. We'll accept you if you don't say what we don't want you to say. 
We'll still attend you, give you some presence, as long as you tone down your message into what's acceptable to modern ears. And it's tempting. They'll persuade you to do that by offering you different prizes. They'll pressure us to do that by we will deny you certain opportunities. They'll persecute you if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time of the wrong audience. And so Jesus says, Father, I was with them. And I kept them while I was with them. But I'm about to leave them. And so for my first prayer for them, keep them in the truth. Keep them in your name. Keep them believing and teaching and proclaiming and preaching and applying only in all that I revealed and nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, no compromise, no concession, because the church is the steward of God's truth. This coming Friday, I've been invited to speak to a kickoff event for Christian professors at UNT. And there's an organization of Christian professors, and they meet and they gather, and they're having a kickoff event. And the person asked me to come and speak, and I asked a friend, I think I know what I want to say, but I'm looking for a text that'll kind of encapsulate what I'm saying. He said, what about that they were always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth? The ball talks about this sad group of people that are always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And that's a great description of what goes on in universities in the world. We're always learning. We've never learned at such a rapid pace. We've never seen such advances in technology in all these different areas. But they don't come to the knowledge of the truth because truth is revealed in its highest form. And where are they going to find it? In the church. And we have been entrusted with this treasure, Paul says, that we are to guard zealously. That there are people out there floundering in error. There are people out there damaging their lives and their marriages because they don't know what the truth is. They don't know how to raise a home. They don't know how to raise their kids. And we have that truth. And so Jesus prays firstly, let them guard it. Let them keep them. Keep them in your name. Because we must only teach, preach, and proclaim what God has revealed through Jesus and the book that Jesus affirmed. And we can't concede on that ever. Jesus then prayed secondly. This is in verses 14 through 16. He prayed for his disciples' protection. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So Jesus asks for our protection. Lord, I'm leaving them. I'm not going to be present among them. And there are three enemies that I need you to protect them from. First of all, you need to protect them from the world. Because the world hated me and the world will hate them if they're faithful to me. And that world will pressure and persuade and persecute. And that world will tempt. Um, If you've read John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim and Faithful go to the city that is called Vanity. And in this Vanity, they host a fair. So before it was a magazine, Vanity Fair was a famous city in Pilgrim's Progress And it was called vanity because it was empty and it was light. But it appeared fair. And as they walked through, all the salesmen of the world tried to distract them with the world's goodies. Buy this, indulge this, this honor, this title, this uh, fleshly indulgence. And they were all hawking their wares. And the road to heaven went through 
the vain fare of the world. And on the other side of it, there was a hill called lucre or greed, and in it was a silver mine. And at the silver mine, they saw a man named Demas. Now, if you know your Bible, Demas was a person that Paul mentions in Colossians and Philemon as someone that was one of his companions. He was a co-worker. But then he says in 2 Timothy, beware of Demas, because he has abandoned me, having loved this present world. He was following Paul faithfully, and then the world got to him. And Demas, as he says, come, come enjoy the mine. We can get you suited up to make your journey more pleasant. And Christian says to him, I hear that that's dangerous and that many people get close to the mine and fall in or injure themselves or never leave. And Demas says, no, it's not that dangerous. But Bunyan says, but he blushed as he said it. (laughs) And this world is a winsome place. And there's lots of goodies out there. And it will tempt us to, you know what, it was great and fine to pursue Christ passionately in college, but now you're an adult, now you have a family, now it's time to grow up and to grab and enjoy and to keep what all this world has to offer. And so we need protection, not just from the world's persecution, but also from the world's temptations, because it's a tempting place. And we know too many people that have fallen into one of that, and we can as well. The Bible says, let he who thinks he stand, what? Take heed, lest he fall. Was anyone wiser than Solomon? Well, apparently. (laughs) But how many concubines and wives did Solomon have? A thousand. And they led him into idolatry. Who was the man after God's own heart? David. What happened to David? Fell into infidelity and then murder and deceit. Godlier men and women than you and I have fallen into sin. And we can do the same. So Jesus prays for our protection. Secondly, he prays for our protection from the evil one. Because again, there is a fallen angel who is committed to your destruction. Not because he thinks he can win and defeat God, but out of spite and out of hatefulness. That every day of your life, you have a bullseye on your back. And every day when you go out and you lock your door to keep your family safe, there's an enemy that you can't lock out. You may have antivirus software. You may have password. We have all these things to protect ourselves from various threats. But there's a spiritual enemy who is committed to our undoing. His pleasure is our harm. And Jesus prays for our protection. And we need that. And the third thing he prays for is for God to protect us from ourselves. He said, Lord, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Because we have a mission to do, right? (laughs) There are unsaved people that need the gospel. We have work to do. He can't pull us out, but yet not be of the world. But our temptation is the world doesn't like us. The world pressures us and persecutes us. Let's just form a bubble, head to the hills, and live in our little cliques and clubs, and we'll be safe there. We'll be comfortable there. And there is a danger for Christians to only surround themselves with Christians. And now we're not out there doing the work that God has called us to do. The salt never gets out of the shaker. The light never gets out of the bushel. And we can't do that. So Jesus prays for our truthfulness, our fidelity to his word. And Jesus prays for our protection from this world, from the devil, and also from ourselves. Thirdly, Jesus prays for his disciples' holiness. 
In verses 17 to 19, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So to sanctify is to set aside for a holy purpose, to consecrate, to dedicate. And those whom God calls into his service are expected to live consecrated, holy lives, to represent God by living like Christ. But that's not easy to do in this world because the world wants us worldly. And our flesh cries out all the time, Amen, brother. (laughs) I want to indulge also. I'd love to gratify that appetite. I'd love to scratch that itch. I'd love to groom that ego. I'd love to indulge in my vengeance against my enemies. I'd love to... But we can't. Because that's not who we were intended to be. God is holy. He made us holy. We chose to be sinful. So he sent his son to die on our behalf and put his Holy Spirit within us so that he might make us holy so that we can become whom God has called us to be. So that we can represent him and serve him the way that God intends us to do. And so that we can relate to God in the intimate fellowship that he intends for us. And so Christ prays for our holiness because without it, we disqualify ourselves from representing him. We discredit ourselves from sharing him. We distance ourselves from enjoying him. And we damage and destroy our lives with the sin that we enjoy in, that we indulge in, because sin shreds life. However appetizing and temporarily enjoyable, sin shreds life. Um, I read an article once about the growing use of sniffing glue in Latin America. And these people are impoverished. Oftentimes, there's a very hard life. And for some diversion and distraction, they they can't afford drugs. And so they just take glue, squirt it in a paper bag, inhale it in, and they get this rush of endorphins that creates euphoria because they're killing brain cells. And then they look at what happens to these kids just a few years into sniffing this industrial glue that they can get a hold of. The Seattle Police Department put up a website called The Faces of Meth. And what they did is they put the booking photographs of people who were booked for meth use. And then they would put the before and after. So the first booking, the second booking, the third arrest. And you watched people age decades in years. And these people that were in their 20s that looked to be in their 70s. Because they were getting this rush. They were getting this high. They were enjoying this destructive, terrible, heinous thing. And God loves us too much to want us to do that. So Jesus prays for our fidelity to the truth. He prays for our protection. And he prays for our holiness. Not because he's harsh. Not because he's a killjoy. But because he is a good God and a loving father. And when we deny our children something, it is for their own good. And when they indulge it anyway, it is often to their own harm. As we often experienced ourselves. Fourthly. Jesus prayed for his disciples' unity. Listen to these verses in 20 to 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So he was praying for the 11 disciples. Now he prays for the disciples of the disciples and their disciples and their disciples and us. Jesus prayed for you. 
before he went to the cross for you. And what does he pray? That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So notice, first of all, for whom Jesus prays, for all of his disciples, for all of those who have heard the gospel and believe that the Father so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it doesn't matter what denominational tradition we come from. It doesn't matter how we vary in secondary issues. If we have Jesus as our Lord, then we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we must love one another. We must be one with one another. It may be that if you, your convictions are that babies should be baptized and another person's convictions are that they shouldn't, that that requires separate baptisms, that's okay, but you can't speak ill of one another or mistreat one another. If this group feels that the sign gifts of tongue and prophecy exist today and this group doesn't, that may mean we need to worship separately to have orderly worship, but that doesn't mean we get to speak demeaningly of each other or dismiss one another. This group may have this view of the end times, this may have this group of the end times, but if we believe that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, then that's orthodox enough and we have to love one another. And it is okay to disagree and differ. It is not okay to demonize those with whom we differ. We are Christians. We are one. We are made distinct by God, by our age, by our background, by our heritage, by our gender, by our socioeconomic level, by our education level. None of those are allowed to create distinctions and divisions in the body of Christ. We are one. And we are all beloved children of God. Three times he prays that they may be one, that they may be one, that they may be one. And the model of that is his unity with the Father. As you are in me and I are in you. He's not talking about an institutional unity that we all have to belong to the same organization. He's talking about a relational unity. That if God is your heavenly Father and he is my heavenly Father, then he is our heavenly Father. And our Father demands that his children treat one, each other well. As a parent, doesn't it break your heart when the kids fight? I mean, it's not just irritating. That's, and then as they get older and the squabbles become maybe settled divisions, and that breaks your heart because you want your kids to get along. And God, our Father, wants us to get along. Jesus, our Savior, commands us to get along. The Holy Spirit within us unites us so that we can be one, and Jesus prays for our unity like He and the Father are one. And the reason for this is so that the world will believe that God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. If I'm preaching a gospel of love and I'm unloving, I invalidate my message. If I teach them that God wants to reconcile them because God is a peacemaker, but then I'm divisive, I discredit my message. Our unity is for the purpose of fulfilling our commission, our mission of making disciples. But if we are fractured inside, if we're squabbling over our little ministerial territories here, if we're hateful and vengeful and grudging here, 
Why would anybody come join us? They can do that in the world. They got that at the workplace. They got in that in their own homes. We are to be different. And in a discordant world, there is concord and harmony in the church. In a cacophonous world there, there is euphony in the church. In a conflicted world out there, there is peace in the church. And we have to manifest that if we're to invite other people into that. So Jesus prays that we would be one. And finally, Jesus prays. And let me close on one last verse because I want you to think about this. Verse 23. I pray that they would be one just as we are one so that the world may know that you sent me. He said that. We look at the end of verse 23. And loved them even as you loved me. I heard Reggie go, whoa, (laughs) that's the right response. Jesus said, God loves his disciples as much as he loves his son. Which is staggering. We can't begin to grasp that. Your son or daughter marries, you love that spouse, but I suspect my children aren't married yet, not quite the same. (laughs) But the Bible says that if you have God's son as your savior, then the father loves you like he loves his son because you are in his son. And the son loves you that much. And that's a wondrous, glorious thing that is part of our demonstration to the world of the love of God expressed in the unity of God's children. Fifthly, Jesus prayed for his disciples' presence someday. Verses 24 to 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. I don't know why Jesus would want me where he is. (laughs) I think a pretty sure way to spoil heaven would be to bring a bunch of Christians into it and let us begin to make a muck of it like we do everything else we get our hands on, right? But Jesus' prayer before he goes to the cross is, I desire, not for them but for me, this is his personal request, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't want to be separated from you forever. What will we do when we're there? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. When Jesus came, he took on human flesh and he was of no great appearance. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And there was nothing noteworthy. You know, he wasn't getting modeling offers as the carpenter of Galilee, as Nazareth. His hands were calloused. His feet were dirty. His skin would have been sunburnt. He was a Jew. Uh, unlike some of our uh, children's Bibles and Sunday school materials, he wasn't white. He wasn't Caucasian. He didn't have blue eyes. He didn't have golden locks. He was Semitic. He was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. In Palestine. But before he came, he was effulgent in his divine glory because Jesus is God. 
the Son is divine like the Father is divine. And he wants us to see that someday. So that seeing him as he is, we will worship him as we ought. And we will stand in the glorious presence of Jesus and God someday. And he goes on to say, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and I made you known to those that you sent me. And I made your name known to them, and I will make it known. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them. And that I may be in them. So here is the last request of our Lord before he enters the garden to be betrayed and set things in motion for him to hang on a cross. Is he wants us with him so that we can experience the fullness of the Father's love that He does and experience the intimate relationship with Him that the Father does. It's indescribable. (laughs) It's unimaginable. But that's His prayer for us. This is Jesus' prayer for His church. He's washed the feet. He's taught them. He's given them the new commandment to love one another. He's encouraged them to abide in Him that they might bear fruit that glorifies the Father. He's promised to spend the Holy Spirit on them. And then they leave, and before He enters the Garden of Gethsemane, He prays this prayer, and He asks five specific things for His disciples, the church. He prays that we would be faithful to the truth that He revealed that was given to Him by the Father, that we never deny this, that we never alter this, that we never remain silent about inconvenient portions of this. The job of a pharmacist is to give what the doctor prescribes, not to make modifications of their own. God has given the truth. We believe it. We apply it. We teach it. We share it because it's truth. And the world needs it. And in a lost world, they should be able to come to the church for truth. Christ prays for our protection because the world is a wicked place and it will hate those who try to live according to God's truth. There is a devil. There is a spiritual being who desires your downfall and is continuously seeking your destruction. And we are apt to simply run from those things and to find a nice convenient place in the hills or buy some real estate in Florida and only let the good Christians in and only have Chick-fil-A and only this and that and That's not God's will for us. The salt's got to get out of the shaker. The light's got to be let loose so that we can be what God has called us to be. But that means that we have to resist the world's temptations. We have to be holy. We can't live a fleshly life. We can't live a worldly life. We can't be like everybody else. We should stand out. Our marriages should be better. Our children and our child rearing should be better. We should be the trustworthy businessmen. We should be the best employers. We should be the best employees. We should be the model citizens because we are living righteously because it's the right way to live. Jesus prayed for our unity, that we all be one, that we don't let selfishness and ego and possessiveness and being offended interrupt our relationships with those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we say at our weddings, what God has joined together, let no man pull apart, let no one split asunder. God has joined the church together. Let no one split it asunder.
And one day, Jesus has prayed for our presence. That when all the fighting's done, and all the hurting is done, and all the wickedness is finally purged, then we will be in the presence of our Savior and to see the fullness of His glory, and we will never be separated from Him. And then we will experience the full love of the Father as the Son has and as the Son died to make accessible to us. And that's our hope. That's the church. What a glorious thing to be a part of. What a wonderful community to be made a member of. What a great and a grand opportunity to live our lives for something bigger and better and broader than ourselves and to fully embrace your identity as the church of God to be a part of answering the prayers of Christ, to faithfully accomplish the mission that God has given us, enjoying the fellowship that He has surrounded us with until the glorious day comes when our Lord returns and we are with Him forever and ever and ever. What is the church? We are. Created in love, to live in love, to enjoy love forever. So let's embrace our identity as the church of God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we would settle for so much less. <laughs> we would settle for selfishness and self-indulgence. And we would settle for what this world has to offer. And we would compromise truth for the sake of not having people think ill of us. And we would compromise holiness for the sake of resisting things that might be appetizing in a moment. Father, we would sacrifice unity out of ego and selfishness. We're foolish to go about as though there were no dangers, as though this world were our playground, when in fact this world is a battleground. And Father, that we would forsake unity and love for the sake of all the, the lesser things that we indulge in. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you, Lord, for Christ its head, its cornerstone, its founder, its Lord. Thank you for his prayer for us. May we go forth and be the church until we are in his presence and enjoy your love fully someday. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.